0: everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you listening from places like Wareham, Massachusetts, Charlotte, North Carolina, Gillette, Wyoming, San Antonio, Texas, St. Petersburg, Russia, Kokkola, Finland, and Turin, Italy. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to follow, share, rate, and review the podcast And you can also go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage and support the show that way. And there's a link in the show notes for that. And buymeacoffee.com is just another way to crowdfund creators. So if you want to support me that way, trust me, it's really appreciated because it all goes back into production costs. And by the way, there's some very cool stuff coming up on the YouTube channel. So if you haven't checked that out yet, definitely do that. And now that all that's out of the way, let me tell you about today's episode. At the turn of the 20th century, Henry Ford was finally on the verge of success, but a bizarre legal challenge seemed to threaten his future and that of every new car maker in America. There was only one option, and that was to fight. And that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Maybe you can't afford that Shelby 289 Cobra or that Porsche 356 Speedster, but having a scale model on the shelf is easy with Model Citizen Diecast. They stock collector-grade scale models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the massive 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. And if you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, they'll give you 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Just visit ModelCitizenDiecast.com and check out their great selection. From race cars to classic cars and everything in between, Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, Henry Ford's fight, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Detroit, Michigan, June 1896. Inside a little brick shed behind 58 Bagley Avenue, a young man took an axe from his workbench and began to chop away at the building's wooden door frame. When that was done, he turned the axe around and he started knocking bricks out of the wall. When he was satisfied with his work, he put the axe aside, wiped his brow, and turned around to push his new invention through the doorway. He'd been working on this contraption for the better part of three years and he must have chuckled to himself that in all that time he hadn't thought about fitting it through the door when he was done. But then it was time to see if all his work had been worth the trouble. So he turned on the power switch, choked the intake with his thumb, and spun the flywheel by hand. The engine coughed and then rumbled to life. The man climbed aboard, engaged the drive belt, and drove his motor car down the street into the darkness. The man's name was Henry Ford, and at nearly 33 years old, he was finally on his way. Ford had been tinkering on mechanical things for many years. By day, he worked at the Edison Illuminating Company, eventually becoming the chief engineer. But by night, he'd worked in secret on his horseless carriage with the little four-stroke two-cylinder and bicycle wheels. In the years to come, he would change the course of world history. But just one year before all this, something happened that would threaten to stop Ford in his tracks before he sold a single car, or before he even formed his first company. And in fact, the impact would be felt by the entire American auto industry. In 1895, the United States Patent and Trademark Office had granted a patent on the gasoline-powered automobile to one George B. Selden of Rochester, New York. Selden was a Civil War veteran and a patent attorney who took an interest in mechanical engineering, and he invented a machine for making barrel hoops. He showed this invention at the Centennial Exposition of 1876 in Philadelphia. a celebration of a new age in science, agriculture, art, and machinery. Being held on the 100th anniversary of American independence, it was a huge event with over 200 buildings. The main building was, at that time, the world's largest. The entire exposition was powered by a gargantuan 1,400-horsepower steam engine, 70 feet tall and weighing 650 tons. There were thousands of exhibits from around the globe, Over 10 million people came to see new inventions like the telephone, the sewing machine, and enormous artillery guns. Even the Statue of Liberty's right arm and torch were on display. But what caught Selden's interest above all else was an internal combustion engine developed by a Rhode Island engineer named George Brayton. It was a two-cylinder, two-stroke design using a pilot flame ignition, just like your water heater. Brayton's engine was intended for stationary work, but George Selden thought he could make it work in a motorized vehicle. He played with some modifications, and he hired a machinist, and by 1879 he had a working prototype. With that, he applied for a patent the same year for what he described as a road locomotive with body, running gear, and steering gear, clutch, power shaft, and liquid fuel tank, with an internal combustion engine of compression type using liquid hydrocarbon fuel which pretty much describes a complete motor car. The Patent Office rejected his application. But for the next 16 years, George Seldon continued to reapply and amend his application, sometimes with nothing more than a minor grammatical change. And he always used the maximum time allowed between filings, two years. In all that time, he made about 100 tiny changes to his patent filing. Seldon's critics will tell you that this was a stalling tactic. And it was but his defense was that he was seeking investors who could help bring his invention to market. In any event, patent number 549160 was finally granted on November 5th, 1895. Meanwhile, Carl Benz had developed his 1885 motor car and received his own patent, and Benz motor carriages were being produced in quantity by 1894. And that wasn't the only innovation happening. Plenty of stuff was going on, And in all those years, Selden had been filing paperwork he never built an actual car. The fact is that the Brayton-type engine was never going to be suitable for a road vehicle. But whoever reviewed this patent application over the years obviously didn't realize it. Either way, George Selden wasn't building cars. And he probably would have faded into obscurity if it weren't for a New York City bigwig named William C. Whitney. The Whitney family was an American industrial dynasty. They were in steamship lines, coal, oil, the steel industry, and politics. William Whitney was a graduate of Yale University, he was the Secretary of the Navy during the 1880s, and he raised thoroughbred racehorses. During a blizzard that hit New York City in the winter of 1899, Whitney noticed that the traffic was struggling to make any progress on the icy snowbound streets. The horse and carriage jobs were bogged down, and streetcar wheels were slipping on their rails, even with sand thrown down for traction. But a small new fleet of electric taxicabs were moving along just fine. They had the power and the torque to push on through the snow. Thinking then that electric cars were the future, Whitney quickly bought out the company and planned to corner the market in public transportation, which at that time was still largely operated by private businesses in every major city. Within months, Whitney and a group of investors began to lay the groundwork, setting up corporations in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and Chicago. To build his new nationwide fleet of electric taxicabs, Whitney made a deal with the Pope Manufacturing Company of Hartford, Connecticut. Pope made bicycles and their own gasoline and electric cars, so they had the engineering experience. There was one problem with this plan, though, and that was the Selden patent. According to one of the young men at the Pope Company, the patent stood in the way of anyone who was building or planning to build just about any kind of gasoline-powered car in the United States. And even though Whitney was convinced that electric cars were going to dominate and he wasn't really interested in the internal combustion engine at all, he had already been burned by patent infringement claims in other ventures. So he was cautious to avoid more of that unpleasant business. In the four years since his patent had been awarded, though, George Selden still hadn't built a car or made any progress in finding investors. So when W.C. Whitney offered him a royalty of $15 per car and a $5,000 minimum annual dividend, he jumped at the opportunity. With Whitney now in control, they started sending threatening letters to other car makers: Either pay us a royalty or face a lawsuit. The Winton Motor Carriage Company was one of the first to find itself in their crosshairs. And Winton refused to cooperate, but the judge ruled in Seldon's favor. Alexander Winton was probably the most successful carmaker at that time, and he immediately appealed the decision. His legal battle dragged on for two years. But by then, the floodgates were opened for further lawsuits. Pretty soon, Whitney and Seldon were going after startup tinkerers, numerous parts manufacturers, and even the New York importer of brands like Renault and Mercedes-Benz. Several manufacturers decided if they couldn't beat them, they should join them, and they applied for licenses under the Selden patent. All of this was unfolding in the newspapers. Executives at the Packard Motor Car Company and the Olds Motor Works decided to get together with a few other automakers, and they gave W.C. Whitney an ultimatum. Let us in on the deal and we'll establish a manufacturers association that handles all this licensing business. And we'll pay you a small royalty one and a quarter percent per car. You can take the deal or we'll finance Alexander Winton's lawsuit against you and bleed you dry in court. No surprise, Whitney and Selden took the deal. The result was the creation of the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, or ALAM. We'll just call it the Association from here on in. Now, anyone who wanted to produce or sell a car in the United States had to apply for a license and pay a royalty. Every car built under the license would carry a stamped brass plate certifying that it was in compliance. The association took out advertisements in magazines and newspapers warning the public not to buy any car that wasn't licensed by them. Over 50 car makers joined the association, including Cadillac, Franklin, Hudson, Mercer, and Pierce Arrow. Now, back to Henry Ford. Remember that car he rolled out of his shed in 1896? Well, it had been a good start, but by 1903, he'd had two failed brands, the Detroit Automobile Company and the Henry Ford Company, which was renamed Cadillac after he left. Ford was undeterred, though, and he soon founded the Ford Motor Company. He even applied for membership in the association, but he was turned down. Because they said he was merely an assembler of motor cars and not a true manufacturer, and he should get himself established before they considered granting him a license. But that was probably a pretext, and the real reason was Ford's bitter departure from what was now Cadillac, and because the Olds Motor Works was building the most popular, affordable car in America, the Curve dash Olds, and they realized Ford would be a direct competitor. So Henry Ford simply carried on and he began selling his two-cylinder Model A runabout in the summer of 1903. He knew the lawsuit was coming, so he decided to fire the first shot. Ford published an open letter in newspapers asserting that the claims made under the Selden patent had no foundation in fact, and they amounted to a monopoly on the industry. And then he really let loose, saying, quote, We do not therefore propose to respect any such claims and shall defend not only ourselves but our agents and customers to the fullest extent. And in taking this stand, we cannot conscientiously feel that Mr. Selden ever added anything to the art in which we are engaged. We believe that the art would have been just as far advanced today if Mr. Selden had never been born, that he made no discovery and gave none to the world. So there... I added that part. A couple weeks later, the association sued Henry Ford and his New York distributor in federal court. His defiance seemed to be a bold move considering it appeared he had the entire U.S. auto industry against him. There were millions of dollars changing hands, and that was a big war chest for the association. And they were playing for keeps. They mounted a smear campaign, taking out ads warning anyone not to buy a Ford or they'd find themselves in court. Ford countered with his own newspaper ads, mocking the association's threats and offering to indemnify anyone who purchased a Ford motor car. And his car was $600 cheaper than any car licensed by the association, so his customers were going to save that much right off the bat. This was at a time, by the way, when American public opinion was strongly opposed to monopolies and antitrust legislation had been passed. And a trust was basically defined as a consortium of business interests that Work together to shut anyone else out of a given industry. So many people saw Ford's defiance as a battle of David versus Goliath, and his public support grew. But in fact, Henry Ford was risking almost nothing. He was spending less on his legal defense than it would cost him to license his cars through the association. And he knew that anyone who truly understood motor cars could see the situation for what it was. The Selden patent was flimsy, and the whole thing was just a shakedown operation from the start. The worst that could happen is that the case dragged out until the Selden patent expired in 1912. So Ford basically held all the cards, and now he just needed to convince a judge. In court, both sides mounted a fervent case. It got highly technical, with scores of witnesses testifying about the smallest of details and the history of patents for self-propelled vehicles. And by the way, I should mention, at this point in history, 1903-1904... We were just getting to a point where the internal combustion engine was becoming dominant. But up until then, it was kind of an evenly divided race between steam power, electricity, or gasoline. Also, the French car maker Panhard and Levassor was being sued along with Ford, and they too put up a strong defense. The battle dragged on for years. The plaintiffs finally even built a Selden car, specifically as an exhibit for the trial. But it's funny because they couldn't have been bothered to do that for the open marketplace years before, which shows you how little confidence they really had in it. This whole thing was just a mechanism to line their pockets and control the industry. Anyway, they built this Selden car as an exhibit, and Ford offered his own cars as exhibits, and they embarrassed the crude Selden car. So none of this was slowing him down. In 1908, Ford released the Model T, which became a big hit. But then, in 1909, the case was decided, and the judge ruled against Henry Ford. The decision showed that the judge really didn't understand the differences between internal combustion engine designs, and Ford filed an appeal. Two years later, the appeals court judge overturned the prior decision, and here's what it came down to. George Selden's patent for the motor car described the use of a Brayton engine, which is totally unsuited to automobiles and everyone knew it, but Ford's engines were a four-stroke design, which had become the industry standard. And therefore, Henry Ford had never infringed on the Selden patent. And that was that. The patent expired the following year, and George Selden went on to manufacture his own cars and trucks, and he died in 1921. And remember the electric vehicle company that George Whitney started? You know, he was going to build all those taxi cabs. Well, it never really went anywhere. They sold a lot of stock, and they had a lot of basically shell companies, but batteries and charging infrastructure were just not quite there yet. And they kept trying to convince people to invest more money. They just needed a little bit more to get over whatever problem they were having at that given point. I think they were really distracted by the whole Ford lawsuit, and the electric vehicle company ran out of juice. And the internal combustion engine was obviously the dominant choice of power plant by that time and Henry Ford's Model T became the top-selling vehicle in the world. And from that point forward, he worked to make the Ford Motor Company self-contained, so he could never be held hostage by any outside interests. None of this was obvious on the day he took an ax to the door frame of the shed at 58 Bagley Avenue in 1896, but nevertheless, it was the beginning of an automotive empire. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, follow the podcast and share it with your friends. You can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP if you want to support the show that way. Always appreciate that. And until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.